Hi, it's Pastor Lars here. Welcome again to our service of Lessons and Carols here on December 27th. Welcome to everyone, Lord of Grace members, people tuning in online. Uh, good to have you with us today. I was looking at some old pictures of myself uh, the other day. As a child of the 80s and a little bit into the 90s, they're always great pictures. Right? The fashions were amazing. Uh, I think about the jeans we used to wear. I got thinking about those, looking at those. You know, it's kind of funny when you think about jeans because they are some of the most durable uh, clothes that we make. I mean, they're literally made out of uh, thick tent canvas. That was the whole idea behind Levi Strauss. They're designed for, for working. And if you just have a pair of jeans and you just wear them like normal, they can last you for years. They don't wear out very quickly. Uh, maybe if you're working construction or landscaping or roofing, I suppose, uh, yeah, then they're gonna get worn out. But, you know, walking to school and back and forth to class, that's not gonna wear out your jeans. Uh, and uh, not to worry, of course, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, because uh, you didn't need to do roofing to wear your jeans out. You, they came pre-worn out. Uh, they, they had taken them and they had covered them in various amounts of acid so you could get them acid washed. I think there, there was stone washed where it looked like they'd been ground through rocks or something. I try to imagine what it must have been like, you know, if you're the uh, person in Bangladesh and you're dyeing all these jeans, you know, and you, 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 can hard, you could hardly afford a two pair yourself uh, with the amount they pay you, but you sit here and you get these nice jeans that you know you're gonna send off to America and you see this perfectly good pair and then the boss says, okay, now that you've just stitched together these nice blue jeans, I want you to run them through a rock tumbler and uh, spray those with bleach and uh, then we'll send them off. And you know, and we, and we laugh because some of those were really interesting looking jeans. You know, they had this, I like the pictures of ones I had, man. They had high waist, they had pleats, they had button fly. Oh, they were, they were styling, they were styling. Uh, and this was the, and being the 80s, uh, I was in junior high and people were dropping big bucks and certain name brands of jeans. Uh, Guess was one of them. People would pay 50, 60, 70 bucks just to have that little triangle on their butt. Um, you, I mean, you can still get them. You can go to the outlet store here in Miranda and get Guess jeans. I doubt people get picked on for not wearing them though. Uh, you know, because in the 80s, if you just wore boring old Levi's jeans, if you just wore the original thing, and uh, you didn't have them pre-beaten up, uh, and you didn't have a fancy name on your uh, back, you could get bullied. You were out of style. And even people who walked around with quiet riot shirts and giant mullets could somehow find the money to get jeans that said, guess, so they wouldn't be made fun of. And I thought it was stupid to spend, I always thought it was stupid to spend that kind of money on jeans. I, I've tended to be that way with all things of fashion. Um, but, you know, then again, I was always convinced that the whole branding thing was really just a tool to use peer pressure and manipulation to get you to buy something with a higher markup that is unnecessarily expensive. Just a way to pressure you into spending more. And I look back and I realize, well, yeah, that's exactly how branding works. It's about manipulating you and pressuring you to spend more money. And that's the whole point of fashion, right? 
I mean, it's to make it so people will be shamed or they'll be bullied or ridiculed or stared at if they continue to wear their perfectly good jeans from last year. It's planned obsolescence for pants. You know, except that, you know, pants don't fall apart or break like a compressor. They just go out of style. And I think about, you know, I think about how things have changed. You know, we, we went to flares and the zeros, and uh, those of us in the 70s remember them as bell bottoms. You know, you could get the jeans with like the fabric lines, you could see the stitching. Skinny, then you have skinny jeans if that's, you know, on and on and on, whatever. They, they, they keep coming up with different ways to change it. One thing the fashion industry is brilliant at doing is picking clothes for you and then telling you that by buying those clothes, you are uh, making a statement about your own individuality. That by going out and buying the same clothes everyone else has, you are being a true individual. And, you know, and when the reality is they picked out those clothes for you in the first place. And yes, I can go up to the outlet mall there and I can buy all sorts of different clothes. Um, but I'm only picking from among what the fashion industry picked for me first. So it's really me being an individual expressing myself and my own identity or while I'm picking one thing from a buffet that they laid out for me. And what's funny and kind of sad about all that is that we're being manipulated and pressured to be who they want us to be while thinking that that's the opposite of what we're doing. I, I look at all of this, of course, because, you know, I, I was always friends with the kids who either wouldn't buy into the fashion or who couldn't afford it. And uh, so, you know, 50 bucks, that was a lot of money in 1986. I mean, it's still a lot of money. Imagine if you were earning minimum wage then, and you come home and you've got these kids and your kid's getting bullied because he's wearing generic jeans, you know, and you got to decide, do I, you know, do I fix that hole in the drywall or do I buy my kid jeans? Well, I don't want them bullied, but I don't want cold air. And I just sit there and go, thanks, guess. You know, you're so gosh darn progressive with so much other stuff, but your whole business plan is about getting poor kids to be bullied for being poor because they won't buy your overpriced jeans. So who gets to decide these things of our identity? Is it our culture? How we live our lives? There's so much talk these days about, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to tell me what to do. Boy, if I've heard that phrase once, I've heard it a thousand times. They ain't telling me what to do. And then those same people, you know, who won't put a ma mask on in a grocery store because they want to make some sort of sign of independence, will turn around and buy all sorts of products that were chosen for them by corporations, and they will make all sorts of vanity purchases and buy new things when the old things are perfectly good just to keep up with the Joneses. And who decided what keeping up with the Joneses was? Some rich people in a corporate marketing department. It's like when the public health department tells you what you should do, then it's tyranny. When a corporation tells you what to do, it's freedom? Except, of course, nobody dies from not buying the right jeans 
or the right phone or the right truck or the right whatever. One thing we try to do as Christians is develop in ourselves a sense of identity and a sense of identity that isn't exactly what the world sort of picks for us. You know, we start out at baptism. Start at baptism, the font right up there. We put it on and we say, we put that oil on your forehead and we say, you are now a child of God. You are marked with the cross of Christ and sealed with the mark of Christ forever. And I think we mean it, even if we don't always fully grasp all that it means. But I know that the idea of being marked for your beliefs and set apart and identified by your faith and how you practice it, that goes way back. It starts 3,000 years ago with Abraham and God makes a promise to him that he will have descendants as numerous as the stars and all God asks is for him to stay faithful, for Abraham to stay faithful, to not worship other gods and to follow the commands that are given. But most of the law hadn't been revealed yet, so Abraham didn't even have that many commands. Mostly just don't worship other gods. And there's a ritual that God tells Abraham to do that will be the mark of being one of God's people, and that's circumcision. I know, everybody's favorite dinner topic. But this was a mark of being one of God's people. It was a physical mark, a permanent mark, an unchangeable mark. Most people won't know or see, although it did create problems for the Jewish boys under Greek and Roman occupation because they would have their gym classes and their gym competitions in stadiums outside in the nude. And of course, it did lead to bullying and shaming and ostracizing. And I'm sure there were Jewish parents who had second thoughts about the practice, but they didn't stop doing it. Even today, when there are countries that talk about banning it, like some doctors in Germany want to, some courts have tried to, the practice was something that Jesus' parents did to him. In Luke 2, we see Mary and Joseph going to the temple to get Jesus circumcised. That was a big deal. You know, not everyone could get all the way from home, all the way up to the temple. You know, travel costs money. And this was a big deal. And, but it was, in a sense, Mary and Joseph's way of saying, we take our faith and our laws and our traditions seriously. And we wish to live according to God's laws. And not only did they have the circumcision done, they even added in a little animal sacrifice. And why bother with all that? Because it matters. Because Jesus was Jewish, through and through Jewish. And being Jewish meant being circumcised. There's a trend. There's a trend I've noticed in Christianity for maybe the better part of 500 years, where people look at the rituals and the practices of our faith and they say that they just want to throw it all out and create a church of Jesus in the heart. And they'll say that all the rituals, all those practices, all those things you've done, don't do them anymore. We're, we at whatever, whatever church, we're just about the heart. It's about having Jesus in the heart. And, and I hear this lines and I think to myself, well, you know, 
There isn't anything in the Bible that says, have Jesus in your heart. And Jesus never says, have me in your heart. He does talk about what's in your heart. You know, doing practices, but being mean. Okay. He never said, I come that they may have me in their hearts and have me hearts. Or however he'd word that. It's an expression that came much later when a lot of pastors and lay people kind of felt that the church had become overly, overly ritualized, that everyone were going through the motions, they didn't even know what they were doing, they didn't understand them, and they thought that going through the motions was good enough, I didn't actually have to look at my own life, and most of them had never actually experienced God in some sort of personal way. And, you know, sometimes I think that was probably true. If you go back long enough, it was definitely true. So the response they had was to try to wipe all of it out. Every sacrament, every ritual, every spoken prayer, we're just going to have Bible study and speaking in tongues. You know, it's that old adage about the pendulum swinging, right? Where we get mad at one extreme and so we just go completely to the other one. You know, you have one partner who's super quiet and everyone wants, never wants to go out, so you dump him and the next one you get the party animal and never comes home. We all do it. We all go too far the other way. And I worry that we can do that when we forget the value and the purpose of ritual and practice in Christian faith. Because rituals, what they do is they form us. They mold us. They, they make us who we are. It's why we call it spiritual formation. You're being formed. And a lot of people today, you know, the, will really react kind of viscerally to that. We'll say things like, well, why should they get to tell me what to do and how to live my life? It's brainwashing and manipulation. Religion is all about control and brainwashing and telling you how to live your life. Well, brainwashing, no. I mean, you're, you're free to quit at any time. And you can read or listen to anything that disagrees with me or the church. We're not a cult. You're free to quit. People have done it. You know, I don't control what media you see. I don't make everyone stand around on Sunday and go, no, 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 I could imagine the pink slip that I'd be handed to. But I do try, I will admit this much, I do try to tell you how to live your life in a good way. Uh, I tell you what I think God says that we should do with our lives and how we should spend our money and how we should treat the poor and how we should care for the widow and the orphan and the alien. I do tell people that I think God wants us to do healthy things in our relationships, that some behavior is not healthy, and some is better than others. I do think that God has a will for us in how we worship, as much as we know about that from the Bible. I don't have much power to enforce it. You know, I'm not running around on Fridays, you know, the flashlight checking for compliance. You know? And I don't apologize for saying 
that there are things we should do as Christians and as followers of Jesus that mark us for who we are, that set us apart, that involve how we live our lives. I do believe there are practices in our prayer lives, in our spiritual lives, in our worship lives that form us and mold us to be like Jesus. And I make no apologies for that. I'm not here, in a sense, to help you find yourself. I'm here to help you find Jesus and live with him. Jesus will help you find who God's made you to be. And in our world, I know, people resist it. We don't like the idea of being molded and formed by the church and the teachings of all these dead people long ago. We like to think of ourselves as molds of clay, right? We are our own molds of clay and we style them and shape them into whatever we want them to be. And so we try to shape the outside so that it reflects the true Lars on the inside. We pick our clothes, our hair, our, our tattoos, you know, you name it. We do it to do what? To brand ourselves and show the world who we think we are. But here's the myth of all that. You're not doing that just from what's on the inside but you're throwing in an awful lot of what the culture tells you you should do. And you may not even be conscious of it. The clothes you pick, the way you style your hair, the tattoos you pick. Somebody somewhere came up with the idea for those things. Somebody came up with the idea that putting a tattoo is branding yourself. That's not evident in all cultures. And the fact is they just used marketing pressure, marketing and peer pressure and culture to get you to think that. What car should I drive? Oh, I'm gonna drive a car that shows who I am. Really? Who decided what cars were available? Who picked the colors? Who decided that this one was a, a better one than the other one? It's, it's kind of like being a fish when you run around and you live and you swim in dirty water. And if it's all you've ever swam in, your life. If all you've ever swam in is dirty water, uh, you start to think that it's all there is, and that it's natural, and this is just the normal way. And you don't realize that there's somebody somewhere, something, there's a hippopotamus or something somewhere, stirring up the, the mud on the bottom of the river. But you don't see them doing it. You're just in your little corner of the dirty water, and you think this is just the way it is. And so, in essence, the hippopotamus controls what you think without you even knowing he's doing it. And then you, and then you talk about what an individual you are, what, what an individual fish I am because I'm so good at swimming in dirty water. I'm such a great dirty water fish. And that's just because you've not been trained to see that the water could be clear. We're all swimming in a consumer culture dominated by marketing and corporate boardrooms fashion runways, internet app developers and influencers with their little, you know, selfies on the mountaintop, you know. We're all swimming in peer pressure. We see when our neighbors buy that new car, that new truck that makes us envious, 
or that celebrities that tell us we're missing out on all the fun being monogamous and not going to Tinder and swiping and hooking up and whatever else every weekend. And we're all swimming in the water of music that we think we're custom picking to reflect ourselves. But, you know, unless you're that real music buff who's trolling SoundCloud and Bandcamp all day long, you're probably listening to what a record executive picked for you. We're all swimming in a culture that's dominated by people who control and manipulate it for profit. And we think it's just the way it is. So when the church turns around and says, we should do these rituals and these practices and these sacraments and read these scriptures and say these certain prayers and do them over and over, we recoil and go, mm, don't tell me how to live my life. But here's the deal. Someone's going to dictate to you how you live your life. Will it be the creator of the universe? Or will it be the creator of a new product line? In order for us to see the dirty water we swim in, we have to spend time training ourselves to see the clear light of Christ. We have to spend time training ourselves to live differently than the world in order to see the, the ways that the world really is not normal, but sometimes very weird, sometimes very oppressive. And training yourself to live differently and think differently is hard. You know, just ask anyone who's ever tried to lose weight. You know, it, it's, it's about a whole change in your habits and your lifestyle. And you have to be consistent. You have to do it for a long time because it doesn't happen instantly. This is what we're doing with the disciplines of our faith. We're training ourselves to live free of the culture and all the ways that the rich and powerful in it teach us how to live. And to do that, you have to have practices. You want to train yourself at basketball, you got to do practices. You want to train yourself at hunting, you got to do practices. You want to train yourself at thinking like Christ and living like Christ, you got to do practices. Jesus said over and over that he was not here to get rid of God's law and all those rules and regulations, even down to what owls you can't eat and what fabric to use. He said he didn't get, come to get rid of them. Now he reformed a bunch of them. He reinterpreted some of them. Some of them he kind of nullified. He wasn't a fan of stoning. But he never said we should just wipe God's laws off the book and sit around in a circle and just wait for the heart. Because what's in our heart is often influenced by that world and that culture that we live in unconsciously. So ironically, or maybe better said paradoxically, use big word, the key to freedom from all the stuff that's around us is to give in to the practices of God. The key to being liberated from the world is to submit to God. The key to finding who you really are as a child of God will involve giving in to God's practices and laws and letting God mold you and form you so you can be not who the influencers tell you to be. We get free 
by following a different rule. Jesus did not come to abolish rituals. He was every bit a part of them. And yes, sometimes they can get excessive, they can get legalistic, they can be authoritarian. All that stuff can happen. But if that's the case, then they need to be reformed. And Jesus did a lot of that. But he never said we should practice a faith with no rituals. He, he held up his cup and said, here's a certain way I want you to eat and drink. We call it communion. We do it every week. We do it even when the pastor can't explain exactly how it works. But we do it over and over and over, and it forms us into who God made us to be. And that is really what our true selves are. And we reread the Bible over and over, and it forms us with its thinking. And we revisit our thoughts about others in our confessions and in our prayers, and we revisit our reactions to them so that we can be aware of whether we're loving or not. And it forms us into who God made us to be. We can be formed by them, or we can be formed by Jesus. I want to be formed by Jesus because I know he is not trying to use me, but is only doing what he does out of love. Amen.